0: Amen. All right, so the ushers are going to come around. Now, here's what uh, we're doing. We are kicking off a new ministry year. I'm not really sure where this whole kickoff idea came from in church, but this is the way churches work, right? We tend to, we tend to do church September to June, and then, you know, especially around here, everybody goes away, and beaches, and all the rest, and today, today actually, is National Back to Church Sunday. I, I don't know who may, you know, there's a national everything now, but... Today, somebody made the call is National Back to Church Sunday. So you're all back, and uh, what I wanted to do is share with you um, what I've been working on all summer uh, that has to do with what I see as an issue that we need to work on a little in our community. But before I do that, I want to share with you things that I believe, okay? So here are things that I believe. I believe that if I change my diet... I reduce my intake of sugar and saturated fats. If I eat smaller portions of better foods on a disciplined basis, that if I grazed and didn't just binge, you know, I believe if I did that, I would feel better and I'd be healthier. I truly believe that. I I see my friends the Kisslings out there. They eat really well. I went out with them one night. It was like being on a massive guilt trip just trying to have dinner. They eat really well and and so I believe that if I ate like that, uh, I know that I would be better and feel better. I I know it's true, I've seen the results, I've read the reports, I've seen the evidence, I've heard from my doctor. Yet despite my rock-ribbed belief in this, I continue to somehow consume large amounts of hamburgers. I had one last night. I continue to eat hot dogs like they're ice cream pops. And I have way too many oversized sub sandwiches every week at Grace House, the staff will tell you. See, I believe in the power of breakfast. My mother told me, and maybe your mother told you, that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. That a healthy one would really jumpstart your metabolic system and would set you off on a good direction for the next 24 hours. I know that's true. I've experienced it and tasted that it is. When I eat my Cheerios, I feel better about myself and better about my day. Yet in the last 30 days, I reflected on this this morning, I think I've had breakfast twice. And one of them was a Taylor ham, egg, and cheese. I'm not sure that that counted. But I believe in breakfast. I want you to know that. I'm going to give you another core conviction of mine. I believe if I put things back where I found them, you know, like maybe if I move something, if I, when I'm done with it, if I would put it right back where it was to ensure that the next time I need it, I know it'll be there. I believe that that'd be the right thing to do. I know that system works. I believe, for example, that I should put my keys on the hook as soon as I come home from church today. I believe that when I get dressed and change my clothes, I should probably put my wallet on my dresser so I know where it'll be next time. I know that that's the right thing to do. Yet, if you put a camera in my house... You would, maybe you were from another planet and you're trying to figure out what's going on down here, you would be sure that my wife's name starts with honey, I can't find my. I know it's true, but somehow I don't do it. Yeah, see, I got a lot of beliefs. I mean, let me share a couple others with you, things that I'm really certain about. I know, I know I should put the toilet seat down every time when I leave the bathroom. I know that's true. I believe I should actually put the new toilet paper on the toilet paper holder when I open it and not just leave it on the ground. I know that that is true. I believe I should put the dishes in the dishwasher and not leave them in the sink for my wife so she can clean them up after me. Here's another thing I believe. I believe I should take the trash out when the thing is full and not jam some more stuff in it so that the next person that comes through has it fall on their feet. I really know that's true. I believe I shouldn't leave my clothes, you know, when I'm getting dressed or changed. I shouldn't leave my socks and my dirty underwear on the side of the bed for days at a time. I really believe in that. I should put it in the laundry. But here's the deal. If you're like me, anyway, my belief, my faith, even when I'm sure of it, has almost no impact on what I actually do. Now, that's kind of funny, at least when we're talking about toilet paper and dirty socks. But if you're my wife, it's kind of irritating after 25 years. But if it's about something more serious. Well, then it's something less than funny. I came, I was setting up in here for Montessori School next door uh, about a year or two ago. I might have told you this story. Uh, Boy, they do, you know, shout out for Montessori School. Man, they do a great job with the kids from what I could see. And they had these kids up here Oh, I mean, these were, these were the just most beautiful kids. And they were all up here, and I was in the back, and they were practicing. And this was just, like I said, a year ago. And they're practicing, and they're singing, and I'm standing there, and I'm getting a little emotional in the back, and I'm really getting moved by these kids. And I thought to myself, and I swear this is the God's honest truth, I thought to myself standing right there, you know what? When I have kids, I'm going to put them in this school. <laughs> and then I remembered, I have kids. And they're all past that age. I see... I really believe that I should spend time with my kids, right? I really believe, I just remember that day, holy smokes, that went really fast. I know I should spend more time with them in deep conversation. I know I should. I should be questioning them about their lives and what's going on in their hearts, I think I should spend more time training them to understand and love Jesus and to have tools so that they'll be able to follow him in a world that's going to tell them they're crazy for doing it. I think, I mean—I don't even think, I really do believe, I have faith that I should make sure that they know based not just on my words but on, on, on my actions that I prioritize them and that I love them deeply. I believe that. Who believes that about their own kids? You're bad parents if you're not raising your hand right now. But, but, If you look at my life, you might easily believe that I care much more about the New York Mets than the Dallas Cowboys. Because I appear to spend much more time with them and be much more passionate about their outcomes. It's not so funny when you believe one thing and do another when it comes to your kids. See, I believe that my wife is truly a gift from God. God, reach me, reach me through my wife. I I believe she's to be loved and valued and treasured and wooed and romanced. I believe that marriage is sacred. That out of all the people in the world, that my wife should come first. I have faith. I know that if I don't set aside regular time to date her and to be with her and to talk to her and look directly in her eyes and to hear what's coming from her heart, I know that without doing that, that love can grow cold. I know that, I'm sure of it. But the truth is, during different seasons in our marriage, all of that stuff that I'm certain of was not Joan's experience in our relationship. Here's something else I know. Maybe you know it too. That God is to be for me the most important thing. Especially for me. I'm supposed to be the pastor. That he's my hope in my life. I believe he loves me. That he forgives me. That he cherishes me. That the Bible says he rejoices over me with singing. And that if I would just come to him and if I, if I would create a little space for him and just make a little time for him to be with him, that he would abide with me and that I would be changed, that I could somehow tap into the river of life available to me through Jesus. I think I could change if I would make the space for him. I believe that. And guess what? In some ways, it has almost no impact on the way I live my life. What I, I believe often has little impact on how I live or the choices that I make. And it's a funny irony when it comes to toilet paper and socks on the floor, but it's tragic when it comes to my kids and my wife and my God. The Apostle Paul, maybe if you're from a a, a different faith tradition, you've heard him called St. Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament, and Paul was really aware of this issue that we have because is anybody else with me on this? I mean, you know, these things that I say I believe, I, I don't... There's a disconnect with how I live my life. And Paul was aware of this issue. Here's one reason Paul, who wrote most of this New Testament, was aware of it because he would go on these missionary journeys and he would go into a city and he would spend time with the people and he would love on them and he would preach to them and he would set up a local church based on on good beliefs and all the rest. But here, the truth is, most of the New Testament is Paul writing letters back to these churches. And you know what he's essentially saying to them? I mean, I don't know if your kids do this to you. My kids have a new saying. No matter what I say, the response back comes with two words before it. Wait, what? Wait, 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 what? And as Paul. Paul's, in a sense, looking at the churches that he started. And he's writing them, wait, what letters? Wait, what? What are you doing? What have you believed? wait. Here's what, we, here's what you know. Here's what you have faith in. And I, I'm getting these words and these letters. I'm, getting, I'm hearing from people that the way you're living it with each other and amongst each other is not in line with what it is that we all said we believed. This happens all the time. It happens in my house. It happens in our church. And Paul, he, he's seeing it. In fact, I'll give you one example of it. It's brilliant because Paul says there's essentially three kinds of people. In Corinth, he was writing a letter to a church he started in Corinth, and in this first letter he writes to this church in Corinth, he says, well, let me explain, guys, there's, there's three kinds of people in the world, right? And so Paul says in chapter 2 as he discusses it, he goes, look, he goes, I, we have received the, haven't received the spirit of the world, but we've received the spirit which is from God. And he says that we got this spirit, we understand these things freely given to us by God, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul says, for those of us that have come to a faith in Christ, that believe Jesus is who he said he is, that that have said to Christ, uh, Jesus, I want to follow you, I want to be one of your disciples, I want to give my life over to you. I confess my sin. I ask you to come to live in and through me. He says that you pass from death to life, that, that you become a spiritual being. So there's one kind of person out there, people that believe the right thing. And the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, he goes on. He says, now the natural person... These are the folks in and around Corinth. These are the folks in and around Chester. These are the folks in and around our jobs and our homes. And, and of course, this, there's no pride thing here. This is just, you know, this is the, the, the natural state of people. This is who I was prior to Christ breaking into my, my life. The natural person, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God because for him, they're folly you ever tried to talk to some folks about, about the things of God and they just look at you and they're like, dude, you know, you're whacked, man. Like, how could you believe that? And Paul says because there's two kinds of people in town. He says there's people that have had their lives changed by the Spirit of God and it dwells in them. And then there's natural man. And natural man looks at some of the things that spiritual man understands and gets from God and goes, you're crazy. Paul goes on, he says, it's folly to natural man. He's not able to understand these things because they're spiritually discerned. So Paul says, look, what we're teaching you guys, what we're sharing with you guys, it came from God and is, it's of his spirit. And the only way you can understand it is if God has placed his spirit in you. So there's these two kinds of people. This week, I got a letter from my son. He's studying abroad. He's over in uh, Holland. And uh, he, he met, um, he did like a parachute drop into Amsterdam, and so he, he met six or eight guys that he liked and they hooked up with and they got a whiteboard out there first night. And they started saying, here's, where does everybody wanna go? And, you know, what, what, you know Paris, uh, Rome, London, Dublin. And so they started writing out all the things they want to do. We're going to be here for 16 weekends. We'll go somewhere each weekend. So he's been going somewhere in Europe. And for like, he, he flew from Holland to uh, Dublin last week to spend the weekend in Dublin for $20. Right? And then him and his buddies, they stay in these youth hostels and all the rest. So I'm talking to him the other night. And I said, where are you going this weekend? He goes nowhere. I said, you're not going anywhere. I thought you had this all laid out. He goes, well, I did. He goes, but uh, uh, all the other guys are going to the red light district in uh, Amsterdam this weekend. And he said, their goal is to smoke a lot of weed and do the other thing you do in the red light district as a 20-some-year-old kid. And uh, so I was like, well, I'm really, I'm really proud. You know, I didn't even say anything to him about it. I was just like, wow. So he sent me an email this week and he said, you know, Dad, I... I didn't realize until I'd been over here how differently I was raised. You know, like, how come I can look, I'm looking at that stuff and I'm going, that's not the will of God for me. And, but when I say that to other, these guys that look at me and they're like, dude, you're whacked. Like, you realize what you could do in the red light district? Come on. And so he sent me a nice letter saying, I, essentially what Paul was saying, that look, that within us, those of us that have come to a faith in Christ, there's something, there's a knowledge, there's a spiritual thing that's going on in our hearts. But then Paul says, see, there's a third kind of person. So you have a natural person, one that doesn't know God. You have a spiritual person, one that the Spirit of Christ has been planted in. But then he goes in, in the third chapter, he says this. He goes, brothers and sisters, I can't address you as people who live by the Spirit. Even though you're a spiritual person, even though you've accepted Christ, even though the Spirit of God dwells in you, I, I, I can't t- address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Other versions use the word that are people are still of the flesh or that are carnal here. He said, you're, you're mere infants in Christ. He goes, look, I, I, I give you milk, not solid food. You're not ready yet for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. You're still of the flesh. You're still carnal, even though you believe the right thing. Even though you know what truth is. Somehow there's something going on in your life where you say you believe something, and I think indeed you actually do believe something, but the way you live is completely contrary to what it is that you say you believe. And you might go, well, boy, you know, what's he talking about? Like, maybe I should be casting out demons, or maybe I should be able to heal people. Is that what he's talking about? And Paul goes, no, 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 it's just like really, really rudimentary and simple. He gives an example. He goes, since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, I mean, aren't you worldly? Isn't there any change? Hasn't anything happened to your heart? I love how he concludes it. He goes, are you not acting like mere humans? I love that, mere humans. Paul says that you you and I, if you believe, you're not merely human anymore. For those of us who believe, he takes away from us the excuse of ever saying, well, forgive me for just being human. You're not just human. The Spirit of Christ dwells in you. You have boundless potential for good. And beauty and wholeness and radiance and forgiveness and grace and joy and hope. You're not human. But something's ha- something happens where we believe the right way and it doesn't make, make it way out. Paul, Paul calls them children. I have a niece, Sophia. She might be here in the service, but hopefully she's up uh, in children's ministry. So Sophia is probably now seven or eight. When she was four or five, we were all family gathering at my mother's house and Sophia is this cute little cherub, sweetheart of a little girl. And uh, I have an Uncle Ted, my uncle, he's my great Uncle Ted. Uncle Ted is uh, in, in his late 70s. And uh, Uncle Ted has a really big belly. Um, let me, I mean like a Santa Claus belly. I, I mean like he's built like me, but his belly would be in the front row. Like Uncle Ted has a big belly. And Sophia was four, and Uncle Ted was coming to the dinner table, and Sophia looked up at him and said, are you pregnant? (laughs) And uh, he said, no, I'm not pregnant. And then she said, you're really fat. (laughs) And see, that's funny when you're four. But it's not funny when you're 24. And so that's what Paul seems to be saying about us He says, like, you shouldn't be this way anymore. I know you believe the right things, but I, I, I sense that somehow it hasn't changed the character of who you, who you are. Now see, there's another reason that Paul knew this, because it wasn't just happening in the churches he planted. It was happening in his own heart. This is the Apostle Paul, right, who wrote, why is it that the things I want to do, I, I don't do? I want to spend time with my kids I wind up watching the Mets. Paul says, why is it that the things I want to do, I don't do? And then the things that I don't want to do, I do. And he goes, who's going to save this wretched body of sin? And In a sense, there's something going on. I believe the right way, but there's something at work in me that, that oftentimes overcomes what I believe, and I do the wrong thing anyway. How about you? See, Jesus didn't call you to believe He called you to believe and to follow. It's a fancy word for this in the Bible. It's called to be a disciple of Jesus. A disciple just means student, to be a student of who he is, to be a follower of who he is. So how's your following? I know your faith might be all right. How's your following? Is what you say you believe about Jesus having any impact on the way you live your life? Or are you still worldly? Or if you want to use a word that's kind of rough, carnal? Let me, let me give you some diagnostic questions, all right? Let me ask you these, these questions, because it might do a little, um, it might be a gauge on how your soul is this morning. First question, with all of the stuff that's going on in the news, crazy week in the news, right? Uh, presidential race, I mean, Boy. Saturn Live is just going to have its hands full for the next six months with this, right? So with all that, you got North Korea saying they're going to use a nuclear weapon on the U.S. The economy continues a 10-year slide. The market's down like over 1,000 points in the last month or so. In the midst of it all, question number one for your soul as a person. Am I growing more easily discouraged these days? It's a real question for you. Second question. This is for all my commuters out there. This is for my, my Route 80 people. This is for my, my Path Train people. This is for all of you who are going to leave here and go to shop, right? And I know you do that because I see you over there, even though we should be home on Sabbath relaxing. But, we, you know, I know. We, we all go to shop, right? Right. And here's what, what's going to happen. If you're like me, you're going to dutifully get 14 items and you're going to get in the 15 or item less uh, register aisle. And do you know who's going to be in front of you? Somebody with 22 items. And do you know how I know that? Because you're like me and you count them, don't you? One, two, three. And something starts going on in my spirit. I know that I should be patient. I know that I should love. But that clown has 22 items in his basket. (laughs) Somebody needs to do something about this. So here's my question. My second question is, am I growing more impatient? Am I growing more impatient with things? Third question, this is a great question. This is for all the middle-agers out there. Am I growing more disappointed in the way things are turning out? Yeah, I mean, I'm coming to grips with it. Like, I'm probably not getting the Shore House. That was my wife's gasp. (laughs) I'm probably not going to become president of the United States. You know, and, and so as we get older, we can start to become people that just kind of get a soul that that's, lives in a constant state of disappointment with the way things are coming. Uh, how about this one? For all of you that are bombarded by the social medias, you know, the, the Twitters, the Facebooks, um, the, the Instagrams, you're watching everybody else's beautiful, perfect family, right? Oh, they have it all together. Look at, look at their manicured lawns, look at their seaside vacations. Let me ask you a question, and be truthful with yourself. In your soul, in your spirit, are you becoming, are you growing more resentful with your days? And lastly, for all of us who feel and taste what Paul felt and tasted about what I want to do versus what I do do, am I growing or am I becoming less disciplined in these days? Here's why I ask that. Because the fruit of the spirit, if you're a spiritual person, what Paul says has the spirit of Christ in him, is joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. One writer said this, he said, I asked a wise man, how do you assess the well-being of your soul? He said, I asked myself two questions. Am I growing more easily discouraged these days or am I growing more easily irritated these days? Because at the core of a flourishing soul are the love of God and the peace of God. If peace is growing in me, I'm less easily discouraged. If love is growing, I'm less easily irritated. The writer said it was a brilliantly helpful diagnostic tool to assess the health of my soul. How's your soul? I know what you believe. How's your soul? And so all these things, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, love, self-control, you know they're all, they could be yours. They could be true of you. And, and so where am I going with all this? See, we had an elder meeting in, in June. And um, when you get on the inside, we have a big church, right? Well, it was a pretty big church for, for New Jersey. And uh, when you get on the inside, you know, everything doesn't exactly look at the way it does on Sunday morning. Because, you know, our lives are messy. And, and we have a lot of stuff going on. And, and we, we tend to to like sheep, go astray, and, and we tend to get ourselves caught in thickets, and, and we do some rough things to each other. I mean, we, you know, we. I'll leave it at that. We do some rough things to each other. Um, and so when, when at the elder level, sometimes we have to deal with the fallout of the brokenness of our, our families and our marriages and our, our friendships and our, our unions, and and. Uh, we were sitting around the elders, we were dealing with one and, and uh, you know, it, 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 it's something that had happened a bunch of times over and one of the elders, in fact, all of the elders are saying, we've got to do something. We have to make followers out of our people and not just believers out of our people. We have to grow them up in Christ so that they're no longer just these infants that, 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 so all of us are saying, I believe one thing but it has no impact on my life. So I, I've spent my summer... Trying to figure out what that was. Now, Darla, we're going to skip the target. We're going to go right to we're going to go right to the second part. So, in that meeting, if I'm going to be very honest with you, I'm not even going to look at my notes. I think I'm just going to go off the top of my head because this is how serious I am about this. Uh, in that meeting, one of the elders is a good guy. I love him. I love all the elders. We're really great friends. But, and, and because he cares about you and, and because, because so, so much pain was going on, and he started pounding the table, and he said, we need to teach everybody the Bible. We need to teach them the Bible. They need to know the Bible. And he's right. We need to teach the Bible. I think we do teach the Bible, obviously, right? But uh, he was saying, we, we need to grow in our knowledge of the scriptures and, and, and uh, in the word of God. And he's right. Except, except, the only thing, one thing started striking me. I mean, for, for, for folks who are cheating on their spouses, I mean, they know that cheating on their spouses is not the right thing to do, Right? So, I mean, they know that. For, for those of us that get hung up in addictions in, in drugs and alcohol and, and pornography, and, I mean, we know that, that we shouldn't do that. We know that that's not good for us, right? And so, I, as I was thinking about it, I started saying there's got to be more to discipleship than just the simple knowledge of what the Bible says. There's got to be something bigger afoot going on. Because I, I could preach till the cows come home that we should, within our marriages, remain faithful to one another. I, I could preach to the cows come home that the scripture says we shouldn't fight about with one another, that we shouldn't gossip uh, about each other. I mean, we know that, but you know what we do? We cheat on each other and we fight with each other and we gossip with each other. And so as I, as I reflected on it over the summer, I said, we've got to come up with more of a, a plan that allows a discipleship um, pattern to flow so that it's not just one area uh, that's getting touched and grown. It's other areas that make us fully formed disciples of Christ. So I started looking at my own life and how I've grown in Christ. And, and then I started talking to the elders about their lives and how they grew in Christ. And then I talked to the staff about their lives and how they grew in Christ. And as I kind of worked through this and coalesced it down, we came to four areas And it should be no surprise, because Jesus kind of explained this. See, I'm a simple guy, and people like to build big, difficult models. And I think big, difficult models are great for books, but practically they don't do much. I talked to a lot of churches about this. I talked to bigwigs in our denomination. I said, tell me your discipleship plan. And most people just kind of shrug because they go, I don't really have one, or we tried it and it didn't work. and so, I, so I've been working through this, and here's what I came up with. Jesus, he got asked by somebody, they said, Jesus, tell us, I, I'd like to follow. I don't want to just be a guy that knows in his head but doesn't have anything coming out of his life. So tell me, Jesus, you know, if you were to sum it all up, what would you say would be the one command? What would be the thing I should be doing? And so here's what Jesus says. He says, here's what you, do, you need to do. You need to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second thing you need to do is you need to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment. There is no commandment greater than these. And so as I looked at my own life and as I looked at what made me a disciple and I looked at what's grown me and I talked to folks around our community, I think Jesus is nailing it with those four things. These are the four areas that we need to grow on. Now, some of us respond to God based on one thing. Some of us respond to God based on another. Some of us are really good in one area of discipleship and really bad in another. Here's what I'm committed to. I'm committed to taking our church quite regularly in Sunday mornings through our small groups, through Steve's youth ministry, through children's ministry, in all of these areas, through these four disciplines constantly, over and over and over again. So I don't, you ever see, the, remember in high school where you had that kid that went to the gym every day, but he never worked out his legs? You guys remember this, right? Right, and a guy'd show up and he'd be like massive up top and he had these tooth, toothpicks walking around, right? Because he just kept exercising one muscle. And this is what we tend to do with discipleship. Okay, so, here, so let's look, put the icons up there, would you, darling? Here's, here's what Jesus says. He goes, you need to love, because love is at the heart of this, Guys, we could love one another, if you could love your spouse, if you could love your kids, right? Everything changes. We need to love God. We need to love each other. And how do we do do that? With our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. So we need to disciple our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. These are the four components that will grow you into a follower of Christ. So you're not just a guy that believes the right things, but starts to experience and live out the right things. Your soul connects to God. The, 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 The river of life flows through you. All right, so we're going to start with soul. Soul is going to be now, let me tell you, these icons are going to go on our webpage. These icons are going to go on our sermon series. These icons are going to go through the small group curriculum. Small group leaders, please join us on the pathway of discipling your people. If all you ever do is study the Bible, you are missing three components of discipleship that I think are important, and I'm going to share them with you. But we're going to start with soul, and that is biblical, training people on biblical truth. The truth is, most of us need to know a little bit more about the Bible. Do you need to know every word of the Bible to be saved? Uh, you know, am I, no, you don't. Do you need to know what it says in Malachi in order to to, to worship Jesus? No, you don't. Do you need to know Some scriptures, some of the important revelations about who God is, who Jesus is, what are his characteristics, what does he come to uh, to do, yes you do. And if you don't know some, some scriptural principles, if you don't know the truth of scripture, you are gonna wind up in some funky places because you're going to be led by your heart. And your heart is going to lead you into, see, people that, people that don't know the scripture, but led purely by their heart, right? These are people that say things like, well, I, my God would never do something like that. Well, breaking news, you don't have your own personal God. There is only one God, right? And unless you have the boundaries with winning. True story, I had somebody come to me once and they said, God has told me to divorce my husband and marry this other person. And I looked right at him and I said, I know that God has not told you that. How do you know that? I said, because the scriptures make it very clear that you are not to divorce your husband and marry another man. That is not the will of God for you. See, so, so we need to train folks on, the Bible says that the word of God, that we feed our souls on the word of God. The psalmist said, on your, on your word, I dwell day and night. The, the scripture says that it's alive, that it can actually pierce through your soul into your spirit. So you need to know the scriptures. This is going to be one part. This is one kind of pillar of a good discipleship program. The church must teach its people the scriptures. We're committed to it. Now, here's the second thing, okay? Now, see, if you're a person that just believes in the heart, but doesn't know the soul, that's kind of, you know, that would be like Oprah. You know what I mean? Like, I love Oprah. I think she's great. But, you know, a lot of times she comes up with stuff and you're like, well, I'm not sure that that way, you know, because she's kind of saying, this is what I think. If you read the scriptures, you will be shocked because most of what you think is not right. I know, I'll give you one quick one. My daughter's not in the room. So she she tried out for field hockey, right, in seventh grade? Nobody say anything to Caroline about this outside, right, promise? She doesn't watch this online. She gets enough of it at home anyway. So Caroline tried, uh-oh, there's kids in here. (laughs) So Caroline tries out for field hockey in seventh grade and they cut kids, okay? Well, now she's trying out in eighth grade, and she made the team. It was a big accomplishment for her. She had never played in her life. So now she makes the team, and she's in eighth grade, and now she's trying out for the team. And she was very worried, you know, Dad, I'm really worried. I don't want to be the eighth grader that gets cut, but I think I'm gonna make it, blah, blah, blah. So she comes home from tryouts this week, and I said, Kara, how did it go? Did you make the team? She's like, I am so mad. I said, you didn't make the team? She goes, no, everybody made the team. They didn't cut anybody. (laughs) And I said, well, that's great. Why are you mad? That's not fair. I said, well, why do you care? I mean, isn't it good that the kids that aren't as good that they made it too so they don't get their feelings hurt? No, it's not. Because it's, you know, and she, she gave me all these reasons. And I immediately thought about the story of the workers in the field in the Bible, right? Where Jesus tells the tale of these workers and some get hired and they work all day in the hot sun. And others get pulled in at the last minute and they all get the exact same reward. Now, does that seem fair? Does that seem Right. See, unless you know the Bible, you're going to miss out. So we got to do, So there's a lot to tell you that we need, to, we need to teach the Bible. We need to teach it well and often, and it needs to be part of everything we're doing. But here's the deal. Have you ever met somebody that knows the Bible inside and out and is the biggest jerk you've ever met? Right? It seems to happen a lot. As Scripture says, the problem is that knowledge puffs up. So... If you know the Bible, if you, if you fed your soul on the Bible, but it's had no impact on your heart, it's never changed you. It's never transformed you. You've never, you've never experienced, you've never tasted God. All you've ever done is hear about him. We need to be able to move this knowledge, the 18 inches, the longest 18 inches in the world, from your brain to your heart. And so we are, over these next years now, as we divide all of our stuff, everything we do into these four categories, the second issue is not just knowing the scriptures, but experiencing God. We're going to start this new series next week called Defining the Relationship, and it's going to have to do with understanding, it's going to have two, co- two icons on it, it's going to have heart and soul on it, because that's what we're going to deal with. And we're going to teach about what the relationship with God was meant to be, but, what we, but how we've misinterpreted it, and then here's what we're going to do. Because so many of us just know about God but haven't experienced him. My elders, we're gonna start doing this twice a year. um, In the fall and in the spring, the elders are gonna run a special group uh, on Sunday morning, second service. And and in that group, they're going to go through some of the ancient historical practices of experiencing God. Six, eight weeks. And so if you want more, if you wanna be discipled more on this heart, on moving the things in your head to your heart, things like solitude, prayer, fasting, silence, celebration, all right? That's all all gonna be part of it, all right? If you're in a small group, if you're not in a small group, you gotta get in a small group. Please go see Connie today. Please go see Connie today if you're not in a small group. You can't grow in Christ if you're not in community. We're gonna ask all of our community groups to go out to Liebenzell, Christian campground right here in Long Valley, led by my friend Ralph. Ralph is a spiritual director, and each of the small groups is going to have a half-day retreat on spiritual formation, moving knowledge from their head to their hearts, experiencing God. So that's going to be another regular component of what we do. The third thing is going to be my mind. Just because you've come to Christ doesn't mean that he taught you to fly an airplane. Just because you've accepted truth about Jesus, and maybe it's even touched your heart, doesn't mean you know how to love your wife or raise your kids or get out of debt. And so we're going to teach practical tools. Coming this spring, we're going to have a relationship, a series on family. It's going to get identified with the mind because we're going to teach practical tools for being in a marriage, a committed marriage relationship, raising your kids and all the rest. And the last is strength. We're going to, we're, we're the fourth pillar of discipleship. Nothing changed my heart more than the moment I walked through the Guatemala City garbage dump and I saw a beautiful little girl cut her foot, bend down, and put it into a trough filled with milky white water that had been oozing out of a sewer. That changed my life. Mission is the final piece. Here's where we're going to keep returning. I'm going to keep asking you to go on the mission of God. I'm going to ask our small groups to take you on missional outreaches. We're going to, I'm going to train you how to share your faith, to talk to your neighbors. And I'm going to ask you to serve. Please, today, guys, go out. Part of your discipleship program, part of being a disciple of, of Jesus, is serving. If you're not serving here at Mendham. I mean, you know, I know guilt's a bad long-term motivator, but I'll use a little of it now. Like, you should serve. Like, that changes your heart. Go and serve some little kids upstairs. I know you're busy. I know that would mean you need to come to two services. I get that. Go and sign up to make coffee. You know, service is part of how we're discipled. It's part of the mission of God. So I'm going to ask the band to come up. I want to close with this. Just because you believe the right thing doesn't mean you're experiencing God. He wants so much more for us than just write knowledge about him. He wants us to taste and see that he's good and to experience him. And that's the goal of these four things, that all of our stuff now is gonna flow through us. We're gonna put, see, I can't disciple anybody that doesn't wanna be discipled. When I first came to Christ, I would sit with a notebook every night in my room for hours and just listen to the radio and take stuff down. And so we're actually gonna put a reading list based on the elders, uh, books that the elders have read that have impacted their lives, and we're gonna file it under each of those things. Um, So we'll get that out to you so you can kind of self-feed yourself. John Ortberg, who has done a great job taking difficult things about spiritual formation, Paul's desire is that Christ would be formed in us. He talks about a story about a woman named Mabel. I know it's Ralph's favorite story. And uh, I think this sums up what's available to you and I if we could move from simply believing to experiencing who Jesus is. This is the story. He says, the state run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It's a large, understaffed, o- and overfilled with senile, helpless, and lonely people who are waiting to die. If you've been to a lot of nursing homes, especially state run ones, you know that's true. He goes on, on the brightest of days, it seems dark inside and it smells of st- sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It's not the kind of place one gets used to. This story resonates with me so much because my grandmother, who I loved and cared for very much, wound up having to get institutionalized into a state-run hospital, and she wound up with bed sores on, uh, on her leg, and then she got gangrene in her leg, and her leg had to be amputated, and if that wasn't enough, six months later, the exact same thing happened to her other leg, and I had to watch my grandmother die over a period of years in this kind of a place. On this particular day, he says, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before and I was looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and some words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases. They were strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and they were looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and the white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one of her ears told me that she was almost deaf. On one side of her face, it was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored, there was a discolored and running sore covering parts of one cheek, and it had pushed her nose to one side, and it had dropped one eye and had distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth, and as a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when the new nurses arrived, the supervisor would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand the sight of this woman, they could stand anything in the building. I'd also learned later that she was 89 years old and that she had been here, bedridden, blind, deaf, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. Her name was Mabel. Now, I don't know why I spoke to her, she looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and I said, Here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. And she held the flower up to her face and she tried to smell it and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were, were obviously produced by a clear mind. And she said, Thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see it. You know, I'm blind. I said, of course, and I I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. And I found one, and I stopped the chair, and Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That's when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. What did Paul say? You are not merely human. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and I learned more about her story. She'd grown up on a farm that she'd managed with her mother until her mother died. And she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and her sickness sent her to this hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches and backaches and stomach aches. And then the cancer came too. Her three roommates, they were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally. They never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was overpowering. But Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I'd read to her from the Bible, and often I would pause, and she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and I would sing with her and she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and she'd make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except when she would stress that in certain lines of the hymns. It wasn't many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And then I would begin to go to her with a pen and paper and write down the things that she would say to me. During one hectic final week of exams, I was frustrated. My mind was being pulled in 10,000 directions all at once about all the things I had to think about. And the question then occurred to me, what does Mabel think about? I mean, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and I said, Mabel, What do you think about when you lay here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. And I sat there and I thought for a moment about the difficulty for me thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she replied slowly and deliberately, and I wrote it down. Quote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks wouldn't, would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I mean, I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old song. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He's my strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No one else can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. And Ortberg closed by saying, this is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know because I know her. How could she do it? Seconds and minutes and weeks and months and years of pain without human company, how could she do it? Because she had power. Because she knew Jesus. Because she didn't just know of him. She knew him. That's my prayer for us. That we would become a people so formed in the image of Christ, so connected to the heart of God, that our knowledge of Christ would only be surpassed by our experience and love for him. Jesus, may it be so for your people. Lord, would you walk with us along the path this coming year as we walk through these things? Would you show each of us, because each of us need need sharpening in different areas. If If it's that we need to serve, Lord, we need to use our strength, Lord, would you convict us to do that? If we don't know the scriptures, Lord, would you move in such a way that we'd understand how important that is, that we'd have a desire for that? Father, for those of us that are all mind and no heart, I pray that you would would crack that in us, Lord. So Lord, I just pray that, that you would be at work as we teach the practical, that even that would be spiritual, and that you would come in this place, that your people would know you deeply. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's stand and sing together as we close.